Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Yes, the boss, letting us know in only the way the boss can that Santa Claus is indeed coming to town, or really has been to town by the time that you've heard this. Okay, well, we've arrived at the end of season three of Thoughts on Record, and I just wanted to give you, the listener, and our amazing guests a huge thanks for supporting our podcast. It's been an absolute delight to be able to speak with so many wonderful people this year. Uh, You know, there's so many choices out there with respect to podcasts that you could be listening to, like literally millions. And we are so very humbled by the number of people who choose to make Thoughts on Record a part of their week. It's really quite amazing and very humbling. And by the way, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love to receive a rating on whatever platform you listen. Reviews are especially appreciated as it helps us to not only get a sense of how the content is landing, but also to continue to ensure that we have really amazing guests for you. Just before we begin, a bit of housekeeping. We, the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, will be offering a six-week course on CBT for health professionals that I will be facilitating. The start date is March 24th, 2023, and it's going to focus on teaching the essentials of CBT through a series of weekly experiential training sessions. Uh, There's also a lot of didactic material as well. So in the workshop, participants are going to learn how to conceptualize client problems using the CBT model individualize and develop collaborative treatment plans and use cognitive reappraisal, behavioral experiments, and exposure-based treatments to help their clients. We're also going to integrate experientially-based exercises to help reinforce and practice core therapy skills. So for those who are interested, the course will be offered Fridays, again, starting March 24th, 2023, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All lectures will be provided by video conference, so hopefully this will help maximize accessibility for those who are not living in Ottawa. The cost is $600 Canadian plus tax. If you want further information or to register, please visit www.ottawacbt.ca slash news or email info at oicbt.ca. Places are limited, so please sign up now. We'd love to have a really good crowd out. I have facilitated this course a number of times and we always have a really great time doing it. So please join us. We'd love to have you. I also wanted to mention that this event has been approved for 18 continuing education credit hours for members of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association or CCPA. Okay, so if you've listened to previous fireside chats, you know that I typically try to provide some content that is geared towards the layperson or mental health consumer in the audience. Now, that said, I certainly hope what we talk about today will also be of interest to clinicians as well. And the topic for today is one of my personal favorites, which is selecting appropriate coping for dealing with stressful events with maybe a few other tidbits thrown in and a few other little tangents. I should start by saying that when we cover this content in our groups, clients will often say at the end, so this is basically the serenity prayer, right? And I mean, they aren't wrong. And just for the record, on the off chance that you aren't familiar with the serenity prayer, it is generally regarded as something like the following. 
God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, according to the internet, it was composed by Winifred Crane Weigel in 1933, and of course has spread really throughout popular culture. It appears in many, many therapeutic domains. There's obviously a lot of wisdom in there, and the idea is pretty straightforward. However, like so many things in psychotherapy, simple does not mean easy. So really today's chat is how to implement these principles using CBT techniques, and I also want to provide a bit of a diagnostic, if you will, for helping you to understand where things may be going wrong as far as mapping your coping to the demands of the situation. However, before we get there, I have a few thoughts that I want to lay out to help frame up this conversation just a little bit more. There was a book that I read recently that had a quote to the effect of the best measure of the health of an organization is how quickly the truth travels through that organization. And, you know, I thought that was brilliant and exactly related to the psychological health and well-being of the individual. And well, why? Well, as soon as we start accepting things as they are and not as we wish that they were, we start to be able to unlock coping that is actually a direct fit for the situation. There's nothing more depression-inducing or demoralizing than continually seeing that your actions don't correlate with the expected outcomes that you want. So I think one of the most important commodities in psychotherapy and perhaps life is being curious about the actual truth of the matter of what is going on. For example, imagine a situation where someone insists that the toaster is plugged in when it is not. They are going to keep putting bread in the toaster, wondering where it all went wrong and why things aren't changing. Now, of course, in this instance, the key to unlocking a different strategy would be to accept that the toaster is unplugged and to take the step of plugging it in. This is, of course, a simple example to be sure, but the principle holds in the context of our more complex human problems. And I'll lay out a number of these examples shortly. However, what is the, and I'm air quoting here, the truth? What does this really mean? This is obviously a massive philosophical question, but generally in psychotherapy, we can regard the truth, or certainly I regard the truth as being an appraisal of a given situation, which allows us to engage a workable and sustainable set of coping strategies that does not hurt ourselves or others, and that we can repeat more or less indefinitely without either of these things coming true. Now, again, this is one of those parts of the psychotherapeutic journey where this is much easier said than done. For example, when you are depressed, it might feel like the truth is that you have no control over anything. In contrast, if you're a perfectionist, it might feel like the truth is that you have control or dominion over everything, including other people, which can be especially hazardous for effective coping. In truth, most situations that we are challenged with have elements that are both under our control and those which are not under our control. Again, the trick is to know the difference. Thank you, serenity prayer. But that is not always easy. Let's talk about why. Well, one of the things to keep in mind is that our brain, especially in times of heightened distress or anxiety, will go with explanations that are emotionally convenient as opposed to, and again, I'm air quoting here, true. By emotionally convenient, I mean some kind of narrative that protects us from the blunt force emotional trauma or pain of what might really be going on either with us, another person, or the situation. Often explanations that we settle on are designed more for reducing uncertainty, cognitive dissonance, or a sense of shame rather than objectively assessing what's going on. And that's fine. Sometimes we initially need that distance. However, in the long run, getting stuck in our stories is a really serious barrier to engaging in effective coping. For example, if somebody rejects us for some reason, perhaps for us continually being rude or inconsiderate, if our sense of self is built on the idea that I am not a rude person or I could never be a rude person, then you might settle on a narrative of that person is too sensitive or unreasonable as a way of protecting yourself from the facts of the situation. 
This might lead to the selection of coping strategies that are misaligned with the actual demands of the situation. For example, you might tell the person to never contact you again, when in fact, an apology might be exactly the way to go. Another similar challenge is that our brain does not like random events. Our brain is a pattern recognition machine and will typically insist on assigning some kind of meaning to an event, no matter how random. Even worse, we will typically choose blaming ourselves for a random bad thing happening over accepting that random bad things can happen. For example, if we're in a car crash while minding our own business, we might start to say things like, if only I had been more vigilant, or if I had just left five minutes later. Again, it was a random bad thing that happened, but we need to make sense of it so that we have a sense of control over future similar situations, even if that sense of control is artificial. You know, the most tragic version of this I see regularly is with survivors of trauma, especially childhood sexual and physical abuse. The usual narrative is often something to the effect of, it wasn't that bad or it was my fault. This narrative comprises the lock on the vault of truth, if you will, around what really happened, namely that it was actually really bad and it was not the person's fault. However, from the mind's perspective, it might be better to live with us being the author of our own trauma rather than having us trying to integrate the soul-crushing realization that people who are supposed to love us and protect us can indeed hurt us, even on purpose. Malevolence is not an easy pill to swallow, and understandably so. Importantly, flowing from this example, I would invite you to consider the kind of coping that might flow from someone who believes that their trauma is their fault versus someone who has had the support and opportunity to integrate a different understanding of their experience where the role of the perpetrator has been firmly established. In such cases, what I have seen is that clients who believe that their trauma is their fault engage in things like pathological perfectionism or self-loathing so that the bad thing won't happen again, again, as though they were the cause and need to be perfect or even worse, punished so that it won't happen again. Whereas clients who are helped to connect with the gravity of what was done to them and, and how creatively they might have learned to survive these circumstances, they can access coping more aligned with self-compassion and self-love. So all this to say, while I firmly believe that in the long run, the most important commodity in psychotherapy is the truth, it's certainly not an easy path to get there. Okay, so let's break down the selection of coping strategies just a little bit more. In general, we tend to think about two types of coping. The first category is what we call problem-focused coping. Problem-focused coping is all about managing the actual demands of the situation. For example, if you have a bill to pay and you have money in the bank, problem-focused coping would comprise simply paying that bill. Likewise, if you had an argument with someone and you know you were in the wrong, problem-focused coping in this instance would be to apologize to the person for prioritizing your needs over theirs. Not surprisingly, problem-focused coping works best when the objective amount of control over a situation or element of a situation is high. For example, if you have a bill to pay, but you have no money, your strategy of paying the bill is not going to work. You might have to use another kind of coping in the interim until such time as you can access more money, i.e. more control over the situation. What is this other kind of coping that I'm alluding to? Well, the second category of coping that we talk about is called emotion-focused coping. Emotion-focused coping helps us to manage the emotional consequences of the situation we are dealing with rather than the actual logistics of the situation. For example, when a loved one passes away, this is not a problem we're able to solve directly, so we have to turn to support-seeking, grieving, or self-soothing as a way of managing our emotions. Likewise, if we experience a rupture in a relationship and a person asks us for space, while we might want to rush to jump in and fix the situation with the person through a discussion, this option might not be available, in which case we have to work on simply tolerating the discomfort of uncertainty in the interim. In this instance, engaging in distraction or exercise might be your best bet. Again, like not surprisingly, emotion-focused coping tends to work best for situations or elements of a situation where control is low. There is nothing we can do to directly affect the outcome, so we need to turn inward and simply work to manage the emotions that are coming up. 
Okay, so this all sounds great, but it's hard to implement. Why? Because it's incredibly tempting to try and control things we have no business trying to control. And why is that? Well, it's because it's precisely those uncontrollable elements of a stressor that we find so distressing, so we will try no matter what. Likewise, there can be strong disincentives to attacking problems that we actually have the resources to deal with. For example, what if we try to solve a problem but fail? Who wants to experience that? What if we discover in trying to solve a problem that is even worse than we thought? Again, you know, we'll often settle on quick fix, emotionally convenient ways of managing and conceptualizing our problems rather than what could flow from adopting a stance of curiosity around what is really going on. Now, how do we know if we're on the right track or not? Let's talk about some examples. Let's imagine for a moment that we have access to an all-knowing truth machine of some kind. It knows the ultimate, universal, objective truth about everything. We'll now use this truth machine to help diagnose the emotional experience of when we have a match or mismatch between what we tell ourselves is going on in a situation and what is actually going on. And by the way, this is the end the wisdom to know the difference part of the serenity prayer, okay? So let's imagine we have a situation where the ultimate truth machine says that we have control over a stressor or some part of a stressor. If we ourselves likewise come to the same conclusion that we have control over the situation and then we choose to use problem-focused uh, coping, the result is likely to be a good one. Our actions are going to correlate with the intended outcome that we're going for. We're going to experience a sense of mastery and confidence. For example, if we have an upcoming exam, we can identify that we need to study for it. We can put in the required time. We end up with a good grade. We feel great. All is well in the world. Okay, now let's say that the ultimate truth machine again says that we have control over a stressor or some part of a stressor. However, this time maybe we're depressed and we come to the conclusion that we have no control over the situation and we ins instead choose to use emotion-focused strategies to manage our emotional reaction to the situation rather than the situation or the demands of the situation itself. The result here might be a growing sense of helplessness, hopelessness, and an erosion of self-esteem. Sticking with the exam example, in our depressed state of mind, we might assess that there's no way we are going to be able to pass anyway. So we engage in procrastination and avoidance. The exam comes and goes, we fail, and we're left with a deepening sense of hopelessness and inadequacy. Now let's turn this around a little bit and assume that our trusty ultimate truth machine tells us that we objectively have no control over part or all of a stressful situation. For example, the death of a loved one. Let's say that we assess that we somehow do have control over this situation and we want to bring them back from the dead through some kind of problem solving. And admittedly, I'm using a bit of an extreme example here to make the point. Here, the person is going to reliably experience mounting frustration, anger, distress, or even rage that their coping efforts are not correlated with the expected outcome. However, in contrast, if we were to rightly assess that there's nothing we can directly do to bring this person back to life, we are going to veer towards more effective emotion-focused coping, such as perhaps the release of emotions, grieving, looking through old photos, etc., likely with as good a result as possible. And what do I mean by this? What I mean by this is while no amount of problem solving will be able to reverse the loss, we are helping the situation to be only as bad as it needs to be, and that's the key, needs to be, by not adding an extra layer of frustration and futility to the equation. While our pain is real and certainly present, there can likewise be a sense of validation and compassionate acceptance of our experience and loss, perhaps even a sense of peace about it. So to summarize, an important diagnostic tool you can take from this is... If you are experiencing a sense of mastery and satisfaction with how you are coping with the situation, you are likely on the right track as far as identifying elements of a situation that you can control, and you are likely deploying the appropriate problem-solving strategies. If you are experiencing an ongoing sense of demoralization, depression, and hopelessness about your situation, 
You might want to check in whether you're missing out on problem-solving opportunities that can contribute to a sense of agency, order, and control in your life. If you are experiencing a sense of chronic frustration, anger, cynicism, or anxiety, you are likely trying to control aspects of the situation that are uncontrollable, or you have not yet accumulated the resources or skills to be able to take control of that which you could. Finally, if you're experiencing real pain, but with an accompanying sense of peace, acceptance, and compassion, you are likely to have correctly identified that which you have control over and that which you don't, and are appropriately applying good emotion-focused strategies to manage your difficult inner experience. Sometimes it truly is what it is, and it's okay that it sucks. Just a couple of additional thoughts before we wrap up this little meditation on control, truth, coping. It's important to point out that almost every stressor has elements within it that are both controllable and elements which are uncontrollable. For example, as we've established by now in this conversation, while no amount of problem solving is going to bring a loved one back from the dead, there very well might be funeral arrangements that need to be taken care of or tangible forms of support that need to be identified for loved ones who are in pain. Of course, the key is to know the difference. You can begin by using the diagnostic that was just outlined and leveraging awareness of your emotional reaction to get a sense of where you're at. Sometimes we can only find this out through trial and error. The key is to be as honest as you can be, no matter how uncomfortable, about what is really going on. And again, as I suggested, the psychological health and well-being of the individual is generally determined by how quickly the truth travels through them. Finally, I always like to keep in mind that our life is under no obligation to make any sense to us. It often just happens and we make up stories in retrospect to knit it all together, which is also why we are such bad predictors of our future. Likewise, the true meaning, impact, or truth of an event may not be obvious for days, months, or years. Perspective and time makes a huge difference. It often pays to let the truth come to us for a bit before making any big decisions with respect to how to cope with it. All right, well, I hope this gives you some good stuff to think about thankfully life provides no shortage of opportunities to practice this stuff out. So I encourage you to dig in and play around with these ideas a little bit. Again, thank you so much for your supportive thoughts on record and we wish you all the very best in 2023. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer, this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. 